contains grim descriptions of graphic content intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Gage. And my name is Ray. And you are listening to Gore Report, a true crime podcast. Yay! Woo! <laughs> <laughs> we just keep getting more and more awkward. I don't know. It's starting to become the norm. I'm starting to like it. <laughs> <laughs> same, same. So, hey, hi, hello, everyone. If this is your first time listening, then welcome. 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 We're super happy to have you. We hope you're having a good day and a good week and, and a, a good, good out of breath i did too we <laughs> jesus we i've got to stop smoking <laughs> that's what i'm saying like goodness goodness our we, breathing could totally be better guys we were actually listening to greta van fleet today and gage was like this man has never seen a cigarette he's never smoked a cigarette <laughs> he's never even seen someone else smoke a cigarette right exactly yeah. i'm telling you like for those of you that like greta van fleet i love them their vocalist i forget what his name is i think it's josh i'm not sure but he can sing. Like, I don't mean sing. I mean sang. S-A-N-G. Sang. He's like the reincarnation of Robert Plant. He doesn't even know what a cigarette is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he totally doesn't even know what a cigarette is. So, I do want to keep this intro really short and sweet. We don't have a lot of business to go through today. Who we? This is going to be a long journey. It is going to be a painful journey, and this is going to be part one of two. I'm coming in with a two-parter, unfortunately. Uh, well, I'm excited for the two-parter. I'm I'm not excited right now. <laughs> I was not looking forward to today. We're going to be talking about Matthew Hoffman. If you don't know anything about him or this case, then buckle the fuck in, because it is wild. It's also very, very sad and very, very brutal. And uh, truly one of the most shocking cases I think I've ever looked into, honestly. Really? I At the end of this, I can say that, yeah, like after researching, it's pretty, it, it's on it's on a caliber that is truly beyond. I'm just going to put it that way and, and leave that where it is. Are we on iceberg level tears right now where this is like the bottom of the iceberg? Quite possibly, yes. Oh, God. Okay. And I want to say, too. We're going down. Yeah, way down. <laughs> it's going down in December stop i'm gonna stop i'm just gonna continue <laughs> moving on so um i want to say too that all of you will be proud of me because i read a book to put these episodes together i <laughs> why mean do you, why do you make that sound like oh my god i actually read a book because it's just like i i read a book i I'm read so a proud book of you. Thank, thank you can i get some snaps <laughs> I mean, I've totally used books as sources before, like pieces of books. Right. But for this, I literally read a whole ass book. And I want to go ahead and shout out this book as my main source for this case. Um, it's called The Girl in the Leaves by Robert Scott. It is a fantastic read on this case. It goes way, way deep into the story, like way deeper than I'm going to give you today. So I bought the book over a year ago, like after we started the show and it just sat on my shelf for ages. And I don't know. I just finally was like, I'm going to read it. Now is the time. And here we are. Nice. I kind of remember when you bought that book. 
You were so excited about it, and then I never heard anything about it ever again. <laughs> right. I, I'm telling you, like, it just literally sat on my shelf for months, and then I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to do this, and now is the time that I'm going to do this. So I will be leaving a link in the show notes for those of you that want to look into this book. Um, if you're just interested in reading a bit more about it, again, a fantastic source of information for this case. Literally, it's the only source that I used for this. I'm just going to bogart your book when you're done with it. <laughs> uh, totally. So let me briefly describe what happened in this case real quick. I want to give a little bit of background before we dive in, especially for those of you who have no idea what this case entails. So the events took place in November of 2010 in the town of Apple Valley, Ohio, which is described as a safe, all-American town that sits within Knox County. 32-year-old Tina Herman, her best friend, 41-year-old Stephanie Sprang, and Tina's two kids, 13-year-old Sarah Maynard and 11-year-old Cody Maynard, all disappeared seemingly out of nowhere. Holy shit. On November 10th, 2010, Tina didn't show up for her shift at the Dairy Queen she was working at, and her kids didn't show up for school either, which was way out of character for them. Tina was the kind of person to always show up for work each and every day. She was never late. I mean, she had her shit together. Mm -hmm. And she was also an extremely loving and dedicated mother, and she always made sure that both Cody and Sarah were at school. This family definitely had a routine. They stuck to it. So when everyone disappeared, including Tina's best friend, Stephanie, it immediately caused all friends and family to panic. These disappearances would lead to an investigation that would unravel one of the most unusually sadistic and brutal homicide cases that Ohio had ever seen. It is truly beyond. Oh, okay. Um, I'd like to abort now, please. You no. <laughs> said, can you just do the rest of this episode by yourself? Right. I'm just going <laughs> to I'm just going to step over here. So the man that committed these crimes was Matthew John Hoffman. He had a deep obsession with looking at trees, climbing trees, being in and around trees, literally everything to do with trees. And his thing with trees plays a part in what he did. Matthew Hoffman is also known as the leaf killer, and the crimes that he committed are known as the hollow tree murders. I just got like a big chill up my spine. Did you see me like shit? Yes, it makes me very uncomfortable. I, like I got immediately creeped out. So how we're going to divide everything up uh, today in part one, I want to talk about the people involved in this case. I would like to talk about Tina, Stephanie, Cody, and Sarah so you can have an idea of who all of these people were and what their lives were like before tragedy struck. We're also going to be talking about Matthew a bit because he's a pretty intensely fucking weird person and not weird in the good way. Um, I'm using this episode to mainly introduce you to everybody. I really want to paint a complete picture for all of you. We're also going to be discussing the murders today. Okay. So it is not going to be easy to listen to. Um, then next week in part two, I'm going to pick up from that point. We're going to finish everything out, like everything that happens after the murders. Because there's a lot in this story, even after the initial crimes took place. Just some crazy shit. Like crazy, crazy shit. So everything will be touched on and talked about. That's just how I'm going to split it up. Ooh, I'm kind of excited. I'm kind of not excited. I don't know how to feel. <laughs> okay. So before we officially start, I would like to say, as I do in all of my episodes, that our hearts go out to the people affected by these crimes. Three incredibly vibrant and beautiful lives were lost. And I personally just, you know, it's horribly sad. I couldn't imagine going through anything like this. Our hearts go out to you. Could not fucking imagine. 
Do not like the vibe. Do not like the vibe. So let's start with talking about Tina Herman. She was born on February 13th, 1978, and everyone who knew her described her as passionate and exceedingly kind. From what I read, she was just one of the sweetest people you could ever meet in your life. Now, when Tina was only 15 years old, she would meet a guy named Larry Maynard. Larry was riding his bike around his neighborhood, which was located in Reynoldsburg, Ohio, and he spotted Tina. Needless to say, when Larry saw Tina for that first time, he was just completely infatuated. Tina was a popular girl. She had lots of friends. She was the kind of person that everyone wanted to be around and talk to. And Larry immediately wanted to talk to her. Um, this is a quote from Larry. He said, quote, There was just something about her that made you like her. Not just me, but lots of kids at school. You hear about someone lighting up a room? Tina was one of those people. End quote. So not long after Larry initially saw Tina, he found out that she was 15 years old, which was the same age as him. So the two started talking, and it was definitely a love at first sight kind of thing. Larry even found out that he knew Tina's older brother, who she was staying with for the summer in Reynoldsburg. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, was she originally from this area, or was she moving here? No, no. Tina was staying with her brother in Reynoldsburg. Normally, she lived in the farming community of Pataskala, which was roughly 10 miles from Reynoldsburg. So she was just visiting at the time that Larry saw her. Larry and Tina soon became inseparable. They really hit it off, and it wasn't hard to see that the two were deeply in love with one another. Even though the two lived 10 miles apart and went to different high schools, it didn't stop them from seeing each other every single chance they got. They went on many movie dates, they'd often get burgers and fries, that kind of stuff, and within a few months of meeting one another, the two officially started dating. After the two graduated high school, they got an apartment together in the outskirts of Columbus. Larry had started doing some jobs with his grandfather at this time, and Tina started working at a Kmart store. And it would be in April of 1997 when Larry and Tina were both 19 years old that they had their first child together, Sarah. Larry got the news at work that Tina was giving birth six weeks early, so he rushed from work to the hospital as fast as he could. And when Larry got there, he met Sarah for the first time. That's got to be like a really special moment, too, because the the whole first love at first sight thing, like it... I am so jealous of people that this happens to. (laughs) Yeah, I totally don't have kids, so I can't relate, but I can't imagine and can, you know, understand why it would be such a wonderful thing. Larry was super, super excited, but also a little nervous because Sarah was born very, very prematurely. So he got this news while he was at work. He rushes and he meets Sarah for the first time. And this is actually a quote from Larry. He said, quote, She was so tiny, it seemed incredible that she was alive. She looked so fragile. Sarah changed our world. It was as if our responsibilities had just doubled. I was determined to give Sarah the best life possible, end quote. Oh my God. So it's like double the, double the love at first sight. First it was love (laughs) at first sight with his, with his girl. And now it's love at first sight with his child. And it's just all is right in the world. Everything. That's amazing. Everything is definitely rose petals right now. Yeah, I guess that's what I was trying to say a minute ago, and I was just like, "Mm, that didn't sound right. (laughs) (laughs) But going back to the point I made of Sarah being born prematurely, everyone was really worried about her and her health. But she very quickly erased everyone's concerns. 
As the days passed, Sarah started flourishing. She was gaining strength every day, and it wasn't long before she was on her feet, running around the house, and causing a complete ruckus. (laughs) She developed very quickly into a healthy, energetic kid, and two years after Sarah was born, Tina would give birth to Sarah's baby brother, Cody. Cody was also born premature, but just like with Sarah, he quickly overcame the odds. Cody, too, started bouncing off of the walls just like his sister did. Larry said, quote, He turned into a real live wire just like his sister. Sarah doted on her baby brother. There was a real bond between these two. I was real proud of both my kids. They were also very kind, and they always shared with others. I don't even know how much of it was learned. It was just who they were, end quote. That is adorable. Cody and Sarah were extremely close to one another. They loved each other wholeheartedly, and even though they fought and had their days just like siblings do... It was very obvious that the two supported and looked out for each other. Um, The love between them was almost tangible, and it stayed with them as they grew older and it grew stronger as they grew older. But now, with two kids at home, a lot of pressure was put into Tina and Larry to provide, and it wasn't exactly easy. Neither of them had college educations, and the opportunities for high-paying jobs was minimal, so Larry started working as a long-distance truck driver. He started delivering various flowers and plants across the United States to different florist shops. Larry initially loved that job, but it soon started to pose some problems between him and Tina. Even though the money was good, the job required Larry to leave his family for extremely long stretches of time, and this left Tina alone to raise Sarah and Cody. So as time passed, Larry and Tina started becoming strangers to one another, really. They kind of started growing apart, so to say. Damn. So this is another quote from Larry. He says, quote, All of this put a lot of stress on me and Tina. She was working, too, at a Myers grocery store by that time and also having to raise the kids a lot on her own. It got to be like Tina and I were passing by each other in our own home. I'd be there for just a little while and then back on the road again. Even when I was home, I was pretty tired. It was like Tina and I were becoming strangers to each other, end quote. So at one point, Larry, Tina, and the kids moved into Larry's grandmother's house. She had a pretty nice house in the township of Hamilton, Mm -hmm. which is a really nice suburban area south of Columbus. So they moved in. Larry continued truck driving. Tina also kept working. And the tension and separation just kept building between them. And it's sad, but that's just how it happened. Now, from what I've read, their relationship never got super volatile or hyper abusive or anything quite on that caliber. Things can happen behind closed doors, and I guess ultimately we won't know the full extent of their relationship because we're not them. But based on research, it never got to that extreme of a point. This seems to be a case of two people growing apart, and even though that is very sad and we ultimately don't want to think about the loves of our lives growing apart from us. I mean, it does happen. It does happen. So... Even though Larry and Tina were falling off from each other, a note that I do want to make about them is that they didn't let it affect their relationship with their kids. Even though they had their own mess going on, they made it a point to put Sarah and Cody first, which is very admirable. They never used the kids as bargaining chips against one another. They just kept what was between them between them, which is what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a really great way to go about it, too, the whole co-parenting thing. Right. As long as you can get it to work out. And never use your kids as weapons against your spouse like yeah, I just, that's, you know. Yeah, that's not right. And, and you know, don't, don't talk bad about the other person in front of the kids. That's not right either. Right, right. The kids ultimately have a right to both of you. You know, you're the parents. 
don't put them in all that mess. Let's just, you know, that's the note to take from this. But they didn't do that. And that's refreshing to hear because you do hear in a lot of cases where that happens. Right. There's a lot of animosity mm. somewhere in the family because of a breakup. or Right. Yeah. Right. So Larry and Tina handled this very well. And I want to insert too, uh, talking about Tina specifically, she was an excellent mother. If you asked anyone who knew Tina what kind of mother she was, they'd tell you that Sarah and Cody were her entire world. Tina was an extremely kind, loving, and dedicated mom. She did everything she could for her kids. She provided everything that she could. Tina worked her ass off. And she was the type of mom to literally move mountains when it came to Sarah and Cody. Tina was a truly docile spirit, and her mother, Barbara Herman, is quoted saying, quote, She was a fun-loving, hard worker, and very caring mother. She loved dolphins and sunflowers, but most of all, she enjoyed watching and cheering on her kids as they participated in sports, end quote. So, going back to the story, things did get to a point with Larry and Tina where Tina ended up moving out of Larry's grandmother's house, mm -hmm. and she took Sarah and Cody with her. Tina got an apartment on the west side of Columbus in the town of Hilliard. And I hope I'm saying that right. Larry said that Tina leaving him devastated him. And he also described this specific part of their separation as the one and only part where there was genuine anger and animosity present between them. Mm. It didn't last very long, but still, this was basically the boiling point in their relationship. Yeah, and I mean, he's still... Or in their breakup, I should say. Yeah, I mean, he's still going to be struggling with, you know, feelings of hurt and frustration as well as anger. Yeah, the circumstances just were not good. Right. So things were rocky for a minute, but eventually, especially after the two moved apart from each other, time kind of eased things between Larry and Tina. The both of them came to realize that it was really circumstance that drove them apart more than anything else. So... The two did grow to have a very civil and positive relationship. Larry was still very involved in Sarah's and Cody's lives. He visited them every chance he could get when he wasn't on the road. This is yet another quote from Larry. He said, quote, I couldn't stay angry at Tina. She was the first love of my life. She was the mother of my children. There wasn't a mean bone in her body, but the truck driving was too much for the both of us, end quote. Mm. And as Sarah and Cody got older it became very clear that they were two very special kids. They were both athletically gifted, academically gifted. Sarah and Cody were excellent students at the East Knox Middle School where they attended. Sarah joined the softball team, and her team would go on to play in a regional competition. Oh, wow. And Cody took up playing baseball by the time he was 10 years old. And everyone who knew Cody and saw him play ball said that he was an amazing pitcher. So both kids had a real talent for sports. But the other thing that made them special, and it's something that I read time and time again, and something that's brought up continuously when reading about Sarah and Cody, mm -hmm. it was their kindness. These kids were so kind, loving, and gentle in ways that profoundly impacted everyone around them. This quote is from Larry, and he said, quote, You know how kids can be pretty mean at times, excluding others from their group. Unpopular kids are kind of pushed to the side. But when Cody saw that kind of thing, he would go out of his way to include those kinds of kids. And he wouldn't allow bullying around him. This was the thing about both Cody and Sarah. They had kind hearts. Maybe it was because they were generally upbeat and happy that they didn't like to see sadness in other kids. End quote. No. 
So in the year 2005, Larry would go on to meet a woman named Tracy and they started dating. The two of them got married shortly after dating and in 2006, they welcomed their son AJ into the world. Larry was doing his thing with Tracy, but he was still very much involved in the lives of Tina, Sarah, and Cody. He was still seeing them every single chance he got. And as it would turn out, Tina also sparked a new flame in her life. She was working at a Target distribution center, and she met a guy named Greg Borders. They hit it off super quickly, and it wasn't long before they were an official couple. Greg and Tina ended up getting an apartment together in Hilliard. And as it would turn out, they would have new neighbors right down the street. Those neighbors being Larry, Tracy, and AJ. Oh, wow. <laughs> right. So this made everyone happy. Larry could now see his kids more. He even started driving locally instead of long distance at this time. So he just had more time at home. Everyone was together. Things kind of flowed smoothly like this for a little bit. So see, even though things in your life may not end up turning out the way that you think it might... It will still end up being awesome in the end. Right. You got to have faith. You got to have faith sometimes. And that seems to be the case here. Like a little bit of struggle, separation, the woes of life. These people come together doing their own thing. Family is the important connector here. Right. That's just kind of how things were going. But in the year 2008, that would be a year that brought rough times for Larry and Tina both. Both of them were laid off from their jobs. So that was very hard for them. Larry ended up taking a truck driving job in Kentucky, and he moved Tracy and AJ with him to Kentucky. It was pretty much his only option. He right. had no other outlet for work. So, I mean, he had to do what he had to do. But now that he lived in Kentucky, he could only see Sarah and Cody on holidays and birthdays. So that was very straining for everyone. Tina even considered moving to Kentucky with Greg and the kids so everyone could be together again. But Tina ended up finding a new job, and ultimately she decided to stay in Ohio. She did make a move, though. Tina, Greg, Sarah, and Cody all moved out to a nice house in Apple Valley, Ohio. Mm -hmm. Apple Valley sits about 50 miles northeast of Columbus, and it also sits within Knox County. And Apple Valley is a beautiful place to live and raise a family. There were lots of lakes for boating and fishing, beautiful lakefront properties, decent schools. I mean... It looked like the ideal place to raise kids. Okay. Tina's and Greg's new house was located on King Beach Drive. It was a beautiful home with a big backyard for the kids to play in. Uh, the house was also kind of secluded and away from other houses, so there was privacy. It was beautiful, and it seemed perfect. Not only was the location ideal, but Tina would soon meet a 41-year-old woman named Stephanie Sprang. She lived two houses down from Tina, and they hit it off amazingly. Stephanie was very bubbly, and she was described as an upbeat, happy person. And the two became the best of friends, more like sisters, really. Stephanie and Tina always went shopping together. They'd go out to eat together. They just loved spending time with one another. And Stephanie was also a mother of three, so her kids always played with Cody and Sarah. And Tina and Stephanie would even help babysit for each other. Tina would sometimes watch Stephanie's kids and vice versa, so they became extremely close. Stephanie and Tina became pillars of support for each other, 100%, and more times than not, they were together. This is a quote from one of Stephanie's cousins. It reads, quote, Stephanie would walk into a room and light it up. She just had that kind of personality. She laughed a lot and seemed like a happy person. Stephanie and Tina were the best of friends, and they did everything together around Apple Valley, end quote. 
They literally sound like people we would hang out with. And it also sounds like me and you. I mean, we're it not in Apple Valley, lot. but we are attached at the hip practically. So I mean, like. <laughs> and from day one. So Right, literally from day one. Right. So it's... And that's just the kind of relationship that Stephanie had with Tina. They were just super close like that. Twin flames, I would say. Twin flames. So during the year 2010, things really seemed to be going well for this family. Larry and Tracy even ended up moving back to Larry's grandmother's house in Hamilton. Mm -hmm. So he was now able to see Sarah and Cody more often. Everyone was spending lots of time together again. I mean, it was a pretty great year to begin with. Larry even recalled that in late 2010, he took Cody night fishing because that's something that Cody had always wanted to do. So they loaded up some soft drinks and hot dogs into a cooler and they went out to a nearby lake at night. (laughs) I went night fishing one time and it scared the shit out of me. I would be terrified. I just don't fuck with, I don't fuck with fish. Like I'm, I'm, I could not touch a fish. I would scream. It was actually the first time I had ever caught a fish, but. I would literally yeah. just like like we went out in the dark with a lantern and and fishing poles and it is scary. <laughs> I just I couldn't do it. Like there's no way you could not pay me to do it, but you know to each their own. Uh but Larry said in regards to this fishing trip that Cody was the only one to catch any fish and they were really big fish too. Oh shit. So Cody was super proud of himself. And on October 24th, 2010, Tina, Greg, Larry, and all of the kids went to a Halloween theme night at the local zoo. And this was reportedly a very good night for everyone. There was lots of candy, snacks, and laughs. The kids didn't even want to leave the zoo until it was completely closed for the night. Nice. (laughs) Larry recalled that in October of 2010, he remembered feeling like he had all of the time in the world to make memories with his children. He had no idea that he was less than two months away from indescribable tragedy. See, I knew you were going to set me up like this. I knew you were going to do this. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. I'm doing everybody dirty right now. You're really, really dirty. Here, I'm going to I'm gonna introduce you to the family, and I'm going to tell you how awesome they are and how great their life was. And then, and then, I'm, then I'm going to forcefully going... eject your asshole. <laughs> exactly. That is all our show is, Listen, I'm telling you. Listen, we're going to have beef if you keep doing this to me. <laughs> In November of 2010, living in a two-story house on Columbus Road in the city of Mount Vernon, Ohio, lived a man named Matthew Hoffman. And Matthew was a pretty disturbed young man, and at this point he was boiling over in his anger. He didn't necessarily feel as if he had been dealt a good hand in life, and he was very, very close to tipping. Oh, God. So let's talk about Matthew. Matthew John Hoffman was born to his parents, Robert and Patricia Hoffman, on November 1st, 1980 in Warren, Ohio. And this is where he would grow up. Patricia described Matthew as a very smart, good kid who was high-strung and rebellious. But even Patricia admitted that Matthew was a little strange, even at a young age. From early on, Matthew had an obsession with trees and being around trees. And Patricia also said that Matthew had a tendency to respond to certain things that people would say to him in ways that would really like off put the other person. Um, So one example, when someone would tell Matthew good morning, he would always respond back with, quote, yeah, and what's so good about it? Uh, Okay, well, (laughs) fuck you and I'll take my good morning back. Thank you. I mean, that's just one example. Evidently, several people can recall that Matthew often gave completely off-the-wall responses to everyone and anyone who spoke to him. That was just something that he did all the time. 
So in 1997, when Matthew was 17 years old, his parents divorced, and Matthew ended up moving with his mother to Mount Vernon, Ohio, which is also in Knox County and about five miles away from Apple Valley. Okay. And when this move happened, Matthew only seemed to act weirder and weirder. Everyone around him noticed that he seemed extremely depressed and just kind of out of touch most of the time. Matthew's neighbor during this time, her name is Alice, she spoke about how she perceived Matthew saying, quote, he seemed really lost, he was on a bad path, end quote. Alice's dog also hated Matthew, and every time her dog saw Matthew, it would just start barking and growling and snarling at him. I mean, but dogs know. Like, dogs and cats, they know. Alice said that when this happened, Matthew would completely stand still in his tracks and stare blankly into the dog's eyes, silently. I don't like this. It's fucking creepy. Um, Alice said that this would scare her a bit, mainly because it just seemed like Matthew was empty behind his eyes. Oh. And he would just sit silently, just staring at her dog. like I'm going to stare at this dog until it realizes who has the real power here, and then it will bow down. It, it you is. Know, it's like... fucking, it's so intense. It's really, really intense. Alice also stated that she always felt like something was wrong with Matthew and that his antics and mannerisms went far beyond that of a normal teenager. So Matthew's rebellious attitude also only grew more intense during this time, and he did start getting himself into trouble. In one instance that I read, Matthew and some of his friends climbed on top of the Lakeview High School roof at night, and they were caught by police. No one got into serious trouble from this, but it was noted that when police asked Matthew why he had done it, he just said he did it because he wanted to. Matthew was also known to jump off of houses onto trampolines and pools and like things like that, and he would climb really, really high into trees. He seemed to have a generalized fascination with heights, almost like a thrill-seeking type of thing. Okay. And when it comes to the thing with Matthew and trees, I learned... Can't (laughs) relate. I I actually learned a new term that may describe it. It's called dendrophilia, which literally translates to love of trees. Now, a dendrophiliac can also be used as a term to describe someone who is sexually attracted to and or aroused by trees. I don't know if that was quite the extent of Matthew's obsession, but yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting. I had never heard the term dendrophilia before, and it also made me think of my favorite video game, which is Genshin Impact, because the plant element in Genshin is called dendro. Okay, okay, all right. You know, it just makes a lot of sense, because dendro and trees... You're going to put the video games down for about a week. (laughs) And then my intense, undying love for Genshin Impact. Okay, I'll stop. stop. (laughs) I've never heard of that either, and I think it's... Yeah, it's dendrophilia. I think it's really fascinating how people are, like... I've seen videos online, and I know everybody knows who I'm talking about, but there's, like, this one lady who, like, was in a relationship or got married to the Eiffel Tower, and then she ended up... Yeah, like, there was one woman that I saw got married to the Eiffel Tower. There was another woman that I saw that was in love with a chandelier. (laughs) One woman was in love with a fence, and then one woman was in love with a roller coaster. All right. I mean, no, no kink shaming and, and, here. And being like being physically present with these inanimate objects was really getting them going. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I mean, there that's was a, a lot that's of a heavy thing. panting, and I, like I just, 
I think it's fascinating, but I also just don't understand it. Yeah, it's definitely a thing. And again, I don't know if Matthew's dendrophilia was to the extent that it was a sexual thing, because even through my book reading and, and research and notes, I never found anything that said he wanted to definitively fuck a tree. Hey, girl, you got some sexy roots. <laughs> You're done. You're done. You can turn off your mic and you can leave now. So, I mean, come on, man. But yeah, we don't know if it was quite like that. But just so everyone learns a new term, someone who loves trees or the love of trees is called dendrophilia. Okay, I'm going to move on now. And if you just heard me laugh out of my mouth, I'm sorry it made a fart noise, okay? You made me, you made me exhale <laughs> and my mouth made a fart noise. Thank you very much for that. Appreciate it. You're very welcome. Matthew graduated from high school in 1999, and after graduating, he went on to study industrial electrical engineering at the Knox County Career Center. And after his studies were complete, he pretty much hopped job to job for some time. He was never really able to settle into anything long term. And in the year 2000, Matthew moved from Ohio out to Steamboat Springs, Colorado. His grandmother lived there, and Matthew saw this as a perfect opportunity to pursue something new. Steamboat Springs was an up-and-coming resort city surrounded by mountains. It had a thriving art scene as well as many nice restaurants and things like that. Steamboat Springs was also known for its winter and summer sports. So it just really seemed like, you know, the perfect place to be for Matthew. He was like, this is so new. It's not Ohio. I mean, outdoor activities out the wazoo, mountains, who could I, not love it? I just started thinking about Step Brothers. We can do so many activities out here. Right. <laughs> right. And when Matthew moved out there, he got a job working for Scott Barnes Plumbing as a plumber's helper. And he was living in a room at the D-Bar K Motel. And this hotel was evidently a place where lots of low-income workers lived, mainly construction workers and maids and people like that. Mm hmm but this is where Matthew stayed while he worked. And in September of 2000, not long after he moved to Steamboat Springs, Matthew would get himself in a lot of trouble. Uh-oh. He was growing very bored, and he was having some urges to do something completely just off the hizzle. So Matthew stole not one, not two, but three signs from the city park in Steamboat Springs. And these were not small signs. These were like the giant wooden signs that welcome people into town like those signs the gi the giant ones i was just about to ask you if those signs were wooden <laughs> they definitely were wooden and he stole the hell out of them just goes all right back to the trees man this isn't like road signs that you can just tear up from the ground with your hands these are signs where a notable amount of effort needs to be placed for them to be stolen. So he fucking took three of them. I think that is wild. No small feat. Is this man like the Hulk or something? Like, did he have an accomplice? No. How? Nope. Just You know those things are heavy. Right. It was just him and his drive for signs. Right on, man. Now, I'm not exactly sure how the police were able to trace the signs back to the K Motel, but they did. Okay. And in room six of said hotel, police found one of the three signs. The other two were found underneath the motel. What? So 
The signs were found, but the sign stealer was nowhere to be found. No one was in the room. So police looked at the motel rental records, and they saw that the person renting room six was Matthew Hoffman. And it turns out Matthew had already left Colorado and went back to Ohio. Like, he got the fuck out of Dodge. So the police tracked him down. They got his phone number. And on September 14th, 2000, they called Matthew and asked him if he had stolen the signs. And he admitted right out over the phone that, yes, he was the one to steal all three signs. He didn't even try to deny it. He was just like, yep, that was me. I am solely responsible for the stealing of your signs. <laughs> like, just immediately. What? And when asked why he stole them, Matthew told police that he just wanted some souvenirs from Steamboat Springs. Which is crazy, because, I mean, he didn't even take the signs with him when he left but literally when i read that all i could imagine was matthew hoffman on the phone with police singing that song um from pitch perfect uh what was it i stole the signs <laughs> okay i'm done my, my dad jokes are like out i'm out for the rest of the episode i promise i promise <laughs> the police are mad out their mind I stole their signs. <laughs> so in turn after this, Matthew was told by police that he had the options of either A, returning to Steamboat Springs on his own accord no later than September 26th to face his charges. Okay. Or B, he could have a warrant promptly put out for his arrest by September 27th. So Matthew said that he would return to Steamboat Springs on his own accord. And after this call, the officer that called Matthew had a conversation with a SSPD detective named Ross Kelly. Okay. And this is where Ross was filled in about Matthew's sign-stealing confession. Okay. And when Ross heard Matthew's name, he kind of recognized it. Ross remembered Matthew as a plumber for Scott Barnes Plumbing, and coincidentally, Scott Barnes Plumbing had a business contract with another company called Johnson Shipley Management. And for this contract, Scott Barnes provided plumbers to do some repair work on the Ridge Condominium Complex. And coincidentally, again, this complex burned down while said repair work was being carried out. It was like a really super bad fire. Okay. And police had already determined the fire as an act of arson. And the point of origin was determined to be condo number seven, which coincidentally again is where Matthew Hoffman was installing a garbage disposal on the day it burned down. So all of this is just kind of falling into place for police. They now not only have Matthew for stealing the signs, but additionally... They think he's responsible for starting the fire at the condominium complex that took place two weeks prior. So they're making some connections. Oh, shit. It was on September 26th that Matthew showed up at the SSPD headquarters in Steamboat Springs to be questioned formally about the three stolen signs. And as soon as he got there, Matthew was read his Miranda rights and then the questioning began. So Matthew again flat out admitted that he stole the signs. He told police that he borrowed a friend's red Nissan pickup truck to load up and transport the signs. Okay. He just went out around midnight and did his thing and then drove the signs back to the motel. It's just fucking wild. So after this, the police clearly already know that Matthew had stole the signs. No further information needed there. Right. So this is when they start asking him about the fire at the condominium complex. They asked him if he had done a garbage disposal installation in Unit 7 on the day of the fire. And Matthew was pretty much like, yep, sure did. 
<laughs> okay. So then they tell him the owner of Unit 7 had a white Chevrolet Suburban and it was stolen and loaded up with a bunch of random shit from Condo 7 and the Suburban was abandoned in the middle of town. You care to tell us why your fingerprints were found all over it? What? And Matthew said in response to this that he had possibly touched the car while he was looking at it. And then he added that he loaded up all of the stuff in the car to move it out of his way so he could then install the garbage disposal. And this made no sense to police. And that they, sounds so, like, right. no. It doesn't make any sense. The police asked him, like, why would you need to move furniture and load up all of this stuff into boxes to install a garbage disposal? Oh, yeah, I'm going to put your garbage disposal in. I just got to put your couch in my car. <laughs> I mean, literally. So Matthew sat in silence for a bit after this, and then he just said, quote, okay, you guys obviously got me, end quote. What the fuck? So then the police were like, well, all righty, like, what did we get you for? <laughs> exactly. Like, you need to explain that to us a bit. And this is where Matthew admits to everything. Matthew said that he knew that the owner of the condo, number seven, was going to be out of town for a bit. So since he knew no one was home, he broke in five times. Matthew broke in and pretty much lived in this person's condo. Oh. Matthew said, quote, I was in that condo five times. I stayed in there and watched TV because my own place didn't have cable TV. I cooked myself meals and used the jacuzzi, end quote. Oh, what the fuck? Like, okay, how would y'all feel? How would y'all feel knowing that somebody was in your house watching your TV? Literally living in your house. Living in your house, using your jacuzzi, eating your food. Watching your TV. Right. Probably petting your dog. Well, I you mean, know, it, make, like... it makes no sense. So, like, Matthew, like you just said, he's in this condo. He's cooking for himself, taking showers, watching TV, sleeping in the beds. I mean, wild. That reminds me of that, that TikTok YouTube video that we saw where that one woman was living in that guy's apartment, but she was, like, hiding in the ceiling. Crazy shit. Crazy shit. Crazy shit. And Matthew admitted to police that he did steal some stuff, and it was, I mean, he stole just some unusual shit. He stole a stuffed mountain lion, a fax machine, and a dresser. He loaded all of this up into the Suburban, drove it into town, and he just left it there. Like, he stole all of this stuff, and then he didn't even take it with him. He just drives the car into town and then fucking leaves it. Was my man under any type of illicit substances that we should know about? <laughs> Not that is... we know of. Not <laughs> this, that we know this of. screams substance. <laughs> so Matthew's plan was to go pick up the Suburban the next day, but he never did. After parking the car, he walked back to the condo, watched TV all day, and then he set the fire. And Matthew had prepared for this by purchasing two five-gallon gas cans from Walmart, and then he filled both of them completely. And he did this two days prior to the fire. Matthew said, quote, I parked the Suburban, walked back to the condo, and sat inside watching TV all day. I regretted what I knew I had to do. I watched TV until the early morning hours of the 28th. I poured the entire 10 gallons of gasoline on the floors of all of the rooms in the condo and ignited the fuel. And then I immediately walked away, end quote. So police then asked Matthew if he was aware of the fact that other people were living in the condos around him when he set the fire. And Matthew said that he knew there was other people there, but he was confident that the fire alarm would have warned them to get out before they could get hurt, which is like... 
fucking scary. And let me give you just a little bit of context. This fire was bad, like really, really bad. If I'm not mistaken, 16 to 18 people ran out of those condos. They were just running for their lives. Like, I'm honestly very surprised that no one was killed. It was just that bad. It was over $2 million worth of damage. I mean, he dumped how, like, 10 gallons? 10, 10 gallons gallon? of gasoline, yes. That's that's going to do some so, real damage. So much damage. Yeah, I mean, just people were just running out of these condos, literally screaming, running for their lives. No time to grab belongings like it was bad. Again, $2 million worth of damage. <sighs> After Matthew confessed, the police had him write out his confession, and then he was taken into custody and transported to the Route County Jail, and his bond was set at $25,000. Matthew ended up facing five charges in total, one count of arson, one count of unlawfully and knowingly breaking and entering, one count of aggravated motor vehicle theft, one count theft for the items that he stole out of the condo, and lastly, one count of reckless endangerment, and he pleaded guilty to all charges. And on January 5th, 2001, Matthew was sentenced to eight years in prison, and he was given credit for the 102 days already served. Okay. But he would only end up serving six years of that eight-year sentence because Matthew was a model inmate, and he excelled while behind bars. And Matthew even wrote a letter a few years into his sentence to the judge that had sentenced him, and Matthew said, quote, During the crime, although my morals were weak, I did understand the difference between right and wrong. Due to my adolescent ignorance, I did not grasp the magnitude of my actions, end quote. So Matthew ended up getting paroled in 2007, and it was determined that he could serve his parole in Ohio because that's where most of his family was at. Okay. And for a while, it seemed like Matthew had learned his lesson. Everyone was kind of letting him do his own thing. He lived off and on in his car for some time because he didn't have enough money for a place of his own yet. So he spent most of his time hanging around Mount Vernon. And he also spent a lot of time in the woods climbing trees. He actually somehow got some tree climbing gear. So like he was very serious about it. So he was just out in the trees. Okay. In 2008, things had seemed to turn around for Matthew. He got a job working as a tree trimmer for Fast Eddie's tree trimming service, and he even met a woman that he kindled a relationship with. He started saving up his money, and in 2009, he was able to buy a two-story house on Columbus Road in Mount Vernon. He bought the house for $37,500 because it was a fixer-upper, and Matthew's girlfriend, along with her eight-year-old son, moved into this house with him. Uh, they even had two dogs. Okay. So it seemed like he was doing pretty good for himself. Um, Matthew got along well with his neighbors as well. They recalled him as very kind and sweet. The neighbors would often let their kids play with Matthew's girlfriend's son. I mean, everyone just got along. Matthew took up a lot of time with the kids, showing them how to climb trees, mm -hmm. as well as teaching them how to identify different kinds of leaves. Like, he was just out there spreading the gospel of the of trees. trees. Who's there? Uh, yeah. Do you have one second to talk about our Lord and Savior, Branchius, the ancient tree god? <laughs> Take into yourself the everlasting and all-knowing wisdom of the trees. It was also something to note that Matthew loved the squirrels around his house, so he would often feed the squirrels with the kids. Like, it was almost a daily thing. Matthew was just very involved. If it wasn't teaching kids how to climb trees or identify leaves, and they were out feeding the squirrels together, everything seems 
fine, dandy, and great, but unfortunately, the happy vibes do not last long. Oh, no, they do not. Oh, no. So there came a point, and no one exactly knows what triggered it, but Matthew eventually shifted his entire demeanor, and everyone around him noticed that he was just deteriorating mentally, almost as if a switch had just flipped in his head. Uh Uh-oh. Matthew became very angry and distant from everyone. Instead of taking up time with the kids and playing and feeding the squirrels, Matthew was now killing the squirrels so that he could eat them. He would barbecue them. He just completely withdrew from everyone around him to a point to where everyone around him was just very uncomfortable and on edge. Matthew started spending all of his time in the trees around his house. He would climb into the trees and sit silently for hours at a time. This guy's weird. And at one point, his two dogs even vanished completely without a trace. His neighbor, Donna, stated that she believed Matthew killed them. She said, quote, I believe in my heart that he killed those dogs. He started pulling back and acting strange. I don't know what set him off. He was just getting more and more weird, end quote. I mean, setting fires, you're stealing stuff, and now you're killing small animals. I I mean, mean, it's weird. It's definitely weird. Donna even stopped letting her children go over to Matthew's house to play because, according to her, Matthew had just become way too fucking strange. She didn't feel safe letting her kids play over there anymore. Uh, yeah. And Matthew's girlfriend started acting differently, too. She was once this very outgoing and bubbly person, but now she was very reserved and quiet and just didn't really talk to anyone or socialize or do anything like she used to do. Uh, Donna and another neighbor both stated that they knew something was wrong in the house and they knew that Matthew was the cause of it. I don't know how I feel about letting my kids go over to a grown man's house to go look at trees and squirrels and leaves and like I mean, we can do that in our backyard. <laughs> like, I mean, I mean. So in October of 2010, things reached a breaking point uh, for Matthew and his girlfriend. She ended up taking her son with her to move out. She couldn't handle it anymore. So a few days after she moved out, she went back to the house to grab the last of her belongings And immediately upon arriving, Matthew started an argument with her, and it escalated very quickly. When the screaming and yelling started, his girlfriend tried to leave, but Matthew grabbed her, pushed her over a chair, and began choking her. Oh, shit. So in the police report, Matthew's girlfriend stated, quote, We were in his living room talking, and he got upset and pushed me against a wall. He had his forearm up against my neck, and he was choking me. I got loose, but he grabbed me again, and we tumbled over a chair to the floor. I was fighting to try and get him off of me, but he choked me on the ground, end quote. So here we're seeing signs of genuine violence from Matthew, because up until this point of the story, Matthew has definitely done some crazy shit and displayed some traits that are definitely a little fucking weird, but here's where he's starting to actually act out in physical violence towards other people. I mean, yeah, you know... There's a lot of red flags in this story. I guess you could call him setting that condo fire an act of violence, but like this was the next level for him because now he's actually enacting violence on other people. Right. No charges were pressed against Matthew for what happened with his girlfriend, and she did get her stuff out and she was able to leave, thank goodness. But that left Matthew all alone at his house. He was just falling apart more and more. And just like I said way earlier, it was at this time that 
you know, he was spending all of his time in the trees because that's where his safety was at. He could climb up and just perch for hours on end and just kind of escape the world around him, I guess. He also had a hammock in his trees that he would spend hours in as well. His neighbor Donna reported that she would just see him sitting silently in a tree, just staring off into space quietly for hours. And that is fucking chilling. Donna also said that it appeared as if Matthew was watching her from the trees. Oh, oh, I don't like that. Things kept going downhill for Matthew from this point. His demeanor shift even started showing at work. So his co-workers at the tree trimming service started being very off-put by how Matthew was acting. He just got really fucking weird. And everyone said that it's like he just changed overnight, seemingly. Matthew used to get along well with his co-workers, but now he was just giving off a vibe that no one was really okay with. So his co-workers, in turn, started complaining about Matthew to management. And after a few complaints, Matthew's boss was kind of like, okay... Like, this, you, you wasn't weird at first, but now you're getting fucking weird. Everyone is noticing how fucking weird <laughs> you're being. going sideways. I, I notice how weird you're being. Like, what the fuck is going on? So, when Matthew's boss looked deeper into him, he learned that Matthew had served six years in prison for arson and theft, which Matthew never disclosed beforehand. Mm. And he also found that Matthew had way over-exaggerated his tree-trimming experience to get the job. He had lied on his application, basically. So Matthew was fired because of this. Mm. So now Matthew has no job, no girlfriend, no distractions. The electricity even got cut off at his house, which was a bummer for Matthew because he loved computers and like playing on the computer and mm -hmm. shit. So with no power, he could no longer do any of that. He had nothing but his anger and the only comfort in his life was the trees. He was boiling over and unfortunately he was about to snap. So Matthew started getting his old urges again, the urge to do something crazy. He was seeking a thrill. That's what he does when he gets bored. So Matthew started breaking into homes in his neighborhood and stealing things. He started doing this very frequently. And in November of 2010, Matthew set his eyes on a beautiful home located on King Beach Drive in Apple Valley. It was secluded from neighbors, so it was the perfect house for Matthew. He even says later that two of the reasons uh, he picked this house was firstly because the house was secluded and didn't have neighbors really. And secondly, it's because he noticed from observing this house that their garage door didn't close all of the way, which mm. is scary as fuck that he thought like that. So all of you listening, we probably learned many great things going through this show. We lock, definitely do. Lock your fucking doors. Lock your doors, please. Holy shit. It just, it scares me so bad. He's got them, he's got them sticky fingers from all them trees he's been climbing, man. It's, it's all that I'm, sap. I'm telling you, it's so fucking he's got scary. Them sticky fingers. It is really, really scary. So this home that Matthew spotted on King Beach Drive was the home of Tina Herman. And Matthew started spending nights across the street from Tina's house in the woods, watching everything that Tina and her family did. And he did this for days. And on November 9th, 2010, Matthew parked his Toyota Yaris at the Gap Trail parking lot, which was only a few miles from Apple Valley. And then he walked to that same patch of woods that he had been using to watch Tina and her family. It was directly across the street from her house. So again, it's fucking scary. He goes to this little wooded area. He has a sleeping bag, a water bottle, and some food with him. So he's prepared to stake it out. I'm so creeped out by that. 
Matthew made quite a walk with his supplies, and he arrived at said wooded area around 1 a.m. on November 10th. And once he arrived, he put his sleeping bag down on the ground and he went to sleep. Around 3 a.m. that morning, Matthew was awoken by the sound of someone pulling out of Tina's driveway. This was Tina's boyfriend, Greg, going to work. He had to leave super early in the morning because he lived about 60 or 70 miles from his job at the Target Distribution Center. So Matthew wakes up, he sees Greg leave, and then he goes back to sleep. He wanted to wait until everyone had left the house before he broke in. Matthew really enjoyed that feeling of just being in someone's home without them knowing. I mean, as we've learned from his numerous break-ins and his condo fire escapade in Steamboat Springs, he gets that thrill from going into a space that he knows isn't his. And when he's in that space unknowingly doing whatever he wants, he just gets off on that. That's what he loves. I'm so uncomfortable. So in the home of Tina Herman, things started pretty early for them on that morning of November 10th. Greg left to go to work at his usual time. Tina woke up soon after that. Sarah and Cody were also woken up so they could get ready for school. They had their breakfast, got their school supplies together, and then they went out the door to catch their bus. Not too long after that, around 9.30 a.m., Tina went to the grocery store, and she also stopped and got some gas. She was going to get all of her errands done early in the morning because she was scheduled for a shift that evening at the local Dairy Queen that she worked at. So once her errands were done, she went back home, parked her pickup truck in the driveway, and then she went into her house. She had no idea that Matthew Hoffman was waiting for her. Uh, Yuck. And I want to insert here uh, real quick that everything I'm about to tell you that Matthew did, like everything that comes next, Matthew claimed that it was a robbery gone wrong. He swore up and down. That his only plan and only intention was to rob these people when they weren't home. Then he was just going to leave with the stuff he stole. He claimed that he did not intend on hurting one person. So keep that in mind as we move through this. I would love to know what your opinion is on that after we get through this. Just keep that in mind. Okay. As soon as Tina walked in the door with groceries in her hands, Matthew Hoffman charged at her from her hallway and grabbed her. She didn't even make it to her kitchen, and Tina was overpowered instantly by Matthew. He dragged her to her bedroom where he pushed her down onto the bed, and he hit her over the head numerous times with a blunt object. He was trying to knock Tina unconscious, clearly, but it wasn't working. So Matthew started panicking, and when he saw that he couldn't knock her out, he pulled out a large, serrated hunting knife that he had brought with him, and he viciously started stabbing Tina. Yeah, that really sounds like a robbery gone wrong. Right. Why the fuck do you have a knife with you for a robbery when people aren't supposed to be there? I don't understand that shit, but I'm just going to I'm going to reel it back for now because we are just starting. Trust me. So Matthew only stabbed Tina a few times before he heard something. Someone else had walked into the house and Matthew Hatton accounted for this. Oh, no. This person was 41 year old Stephanie Spring. She had come to pick up Tina because they had plans to go look at apartments that day before Tina went to work. So it turns out Tina and the kids were looking for a place to live because her and Greg were breaking up and they didn't want to live with each other anymore. You know, just how it was. So Stephanie was going to make a best friend's day out of it. And she went into Tina's house to the bedroom calling out for her to see Matthew standing over Tina with a hunting knife. I could not fucking imagine that. Oh, my God. So Matthew lunges at Stephanie, and even though she tried fighting as hard as she could, she too was overpowered by him. 
Matthew dragged Stephanie into Sarah's bedroom where he stabbed her viciously in the chest twice. The stab wounds were inflicted with so much force that Stephanie reportedly died almost immediately and blood went everywhere. I mean, it was just in pools all over Sarah's room. And even after Stephanie died, Matthew continued to stab her over and over again. After brutally murdering Stephanie, Matthew then returned to Tina, where he continued to stab her. Tina's lungs were punctured, as well as several other of her vital organs, uh, as a result of the numerous stab wounds. Matthew took his hunting knife, and then he completely cut open Tina's abdomen. Right, but this is a robbery gone wrong. After Matthew made sure that both women were dead, he put Tina's body in the bathtub, and this is where he started dismembering her with his hunting knife. Matthew knew that he didn't have any tool at his disposal that could cut through the bones, so he essentially tore the limbs apart, disarticulating her entire body at the joints. Matthew said, quote, I took the bodies into the bathroom and began processing the bodies to dispose of them. I used garbage bags from within the house and placed the bodies within, end quote. Matthew also heard that the family dog was barking and going crazy, and he was afraid that someone would hear the dog and then call the cops. So Matthew stabbed this dog to death, and then he dismembered the dog in the tub alongside Tina with a hunting knife. What the fuck? And then Matthew dismembered Stephanie Spring as well, and then he put everyone's severed body parts into trash bags. Matthew then went to clean up the crime scene by pouring motor oil all over the house. He was pouring the oil on the bloodstains and drag marks, trying to cover those up, essentially. Mm -hmm. His plan was to set the house on fire, but then something else happened that he hadn't accounted for. Sarah and Cody got home from school. Oh, no. When the kids approached their house, everything seemed normal on the outside. They had no idea of what had taken place inside. Sarah and Cody both noticed blood in the entryway of their home, and this concerned them immediately. Sarah said, quote, we had a love seat by the door, and Cody was going to take off his shoes there. I saw blood near the door, and Mom wasn't in the house. She always greeted us when we came home, end quote. So Sarah and Cody walked into the house calling for their mom, only to be greeted by Matthew Hoffman charging full speed at them. Oh, my God. Matthew tackled Cody to the ground, and Sarah barely managed to slip past him as she ran to her bedroom and shut the door. She was trying to find her phone to call 911. Sarah said, quote, he was trying to grab both of us, but it seemed like he wanted to do one person at a time. I got by him and ran to my bedroom, end quote. When Matthew tackled Cody to the ground, he pulled out his knife, the big hunting knife, and he stabbed Cody through the back of his head, killing him immediately. Oh, my God. Cody was 11 years old. And after Matthew plunged the knife through his skull, he stabbed him a few more times instinctively, and then he got up and ran after Sarah. So Sarah said that Matthew bursted into her room and grabbed her. She didn't even have a chance to grab her phone. Matthew went to stab Sarah, but then he just stopped. And instead of stabbing her, he cut some electrical cord off of her fan in her room and then he bound her hands with it. And he told Sarah that if she made a single sound that he would kill her. Matthew put a pillowcase over Sarah's head and he carried her down to the basement where he used the rope off of an old sled to bind her legs together. And then he also gagged Sarah as well. And after this, Matthew carried Sarah upstairs and tossed her on the floor. And before Matthew put her on the floor, the pillowcase had fallen off of her head. So Sarah sat there terrified and gagged while Matthew was going through the house cleaning up the scene. Matthew also took this time to dismember Cody 
and he put Cody's body parts into trash bags as well. So Sarah is quoted saying, quote, in the kitchen, I could see groceries on the floor. It was really weird because mom didn't do things that way, end quote. It is fucking sad. Cody was 11. Sarah is 13. Wow. So after Matthew was done, he blindfolded Sarah and he put her in Stephanie's Jeep alongside several trash bags. Sarah had no idea that she was sitting in the middle of the bagged up body parts belonging to her mom, her brother, her auntie, and her dog. Oh my God. Matthew drove for some time before he parked the Jeep. And when he parked, he told Sarah that if she tried to look through her blindfold, that he would kill her. He told her that he would be watching. So when Sarah heard Matthew walk away, she just pretty much decided, fuck you. I mean, look through the blindfold. I want to see where I'm at. So she saw just enough for her to get a glimpse of her surroundings. Uh, She recognized the area as the Pipesville Road baseball fields. These are the fields that Cody played ball on. Mm -hmm. And Sarah noticed it was dark outside. And she also caught a glimpse of the several trash bags that were surrounding her. Before she could look around anymore, Matthew ran up to her yelling, quote, I told you I would be watching you, end quote. Matthew then tightened Sarah's blindfold and told her that if she tried to look again, that he would for real kill her. And after this, Sarah was so terrified and confused. I mean, she didn't want to take any more chances. So Matthew was gone for over an hour. It turns out he was walking back to his Toyota Yaris that he had parked before walking to Tina's house. So when he got to his car, he drove it back to Stephanie's Jeep, and then he moved Sarah from the Jeep to his car. Once Sarah was in his car, Matthew drove Sarah to his house, where he took her inside and put her in his bathroom. When Matthew removed Sarah's blindfold, she saw that the walls were solid white, and they were covered in really creepy drawings that looked like they were done in black paint or black ink. There were, like, humanoid-type things drawn everywhere. Um, Smiling faces, peace symbols, and, like, stars and animals. Uh, And perhaps the strangest of all was a drawing of a face of a man that was drawn above the sink. And the way that the drawing was positioned, it was like the faucet, like the literal faucet, was coming out of the man's mouth. So, like, what the fuck? I know. Like, I could not imagine what was going through Sarah's mind and the terror that she was feeling. I mean, this is just fucking wild, almost like a fever dream wild. But it's real. She's been kidnapped, and this is what she's brought to. I could not. So, Matthew tells Sarah that he's going to leave for a bit, and he warns her that he's going to have people watching over his house in case she tried any funny business. So this poor girl is terrified. I mean, of course, she's not going to move or do anything. I mean, for all she knows, people could be watching the house. I just couldn't fucking imagine. So before he leaves, Matthew duct tapes Sarah, and then he leaves and drives back to the Jeep where he moved the bags of dismembered remains into his car. And then he goes to fucking Walmart, where he's caught on surveillance footage buying a $1 Halloween t-shirt and a turkey sandwich. Which, that's fucking insane to me. This guy just killed and dismembered three people and a dog. And these body parts are in his car, in this Walmart parking lot. He has a 13-year-old girl duct taped and tied up in his bathroom at home. And and he goes and buys a t-shirt and a turkey sandwich. Right. Like, if you had no context for anything that he did and you see this footage, he just looks like a normal person getting a Halloween shirt and a sandwich. Like, I fucking, I can't. 
I literally fucking can't. Matthew also purchased a blue tarp and trash bags during this Walmart trip. When Matthew left Walmart, he drove to an ideal location that he picked out to dispose of the body parts. I'm not going to tell you where he put the bodies yet. Because at this point in the story, it is not known what he did with them. So I'm going to leave that tidbit for next week. It will come out, trust me. But he disposes of the bodies. Okay. So after Matthew got rid of the body parts, he drove his car to Tina's house. And he placed the blue tarp and trash bags in the garage and he left them there. And then he got in Tina's pickup truck that was in the driveway. His plan was to take the truck to the gas station so he could buy some gas to set the house on fire. But the truck was having some mechanical issues. The truck was struggling to stay in gear and it was shaking and bumping down the road. So when Matthew got a few minutes from Tina's house, the engine stalled out completely. So he had to walk back to Tina's house on foot. What the fuck? He didn't want to risk an officer stopping him. So he just ditched the truck and was like, okay, fuck it. I'm going to walk back. And this walk took Matthew several hours. He didn't make it back to his car until almost dawn. So when he finally made it back, he was so tired from walking. He was like, you know, to hell with the plan, to hell with burning the house down. He just sat the shit there and then got in his car and went back to his place where Sarah was still taped up and tied in his bathroom. And that's a note that I wanted to make too. like a your opinion on this. That man claimed this was a robbery gone wrong. So let's have that conversation for just one second. Absolutely not. Robbery gone fucking wrong. That is absolutely fucking insane to me. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Like when I tell you that I came up out of my fucking chair reading this shit, like when I was going through this book, I straight up almost fucking wigged out. I really, really, really did. Because, I mean, he was obviously casing the place. He would obviously know that, you know, this woman is there. Day right. in and day out. He had other watched than, them. Oh, other than going to work. Exactly. You know, and he knew there was children there. Right. He, we don't know at this point how long he actually cased the house, but he did indeed case the house, which tells us that he knew what was going on. He had plans, and I'm gonna, I want to go ahead. And you don't bring a knife with you. Like, if you're just planning to go in... And rob an empty house. quickly rob an empty house, why would you have a knife with you? Right. That makes no fucking sense to me. And I want to say, too, I think he had every single fucking bit of this planned. I think he knew exactly what he was going to do. I think when Stephanie Spring walked into the house, that that threw him way fucking off. I don't think he was expecting another adult to just willy-nilly walk in, so I think that threw him, like, way off fucking guard. But I believe that he planned all this. More specifically, I believed that he wanted Sarah. Yeah, it it definitely does sound that way because it it just—it seems like a lot to go through if— that person was not, like, the main objective. You see what right. I'm saying? I'm just saying because he he tried to say, you know, when it came to stabbing Sarah, why didn't you stab Sarah? Oh, I just couldn't bring myself to do it. Bullshit. You just brought yourself to brutally kill and dismember three people and a fucking dog. Right. You're not having any trouble with right. that. Right. You exactly. you You wanted her alive. You wanted to kidnap her, and you wanted to fucking take her, and you knew the only way you could do that is if you killed everyone around her. I fucking can't. So I would love to hear what all of you think on that. When I heard robbery gone wrong, I can't can't describe it. I can't describe it to you. I've I've been sitting here not able to say a fucking word just listening like this. It's It's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. Now, 
going back to the story, while Sarah was alone in Matthew's house for hours, she started thinking about what she needed to do to survive. Mm -hmm. She had already started, you know, telling herself that chances were her mother and her brother were dead. Yeah. Sarah had no idea, though, that her aunt Stephanie and her dog had also been murdered. But Sarah's thinking that, you know, she had to get on Matthew's good side if she wanted to live. So she decides that she's going to start talking to him and she's going to try to appeal to whatever humanity is left inside of him. So when Matthew comes in, he makes sure that her restraints are still in place and then he just sits with her. So Sarah started asking Matthew about his drawings that were all over the bathroom. Um, She's asking him what the different characters are. And Matthew tried explaining to her that they were just his creations, some half human, half animal. None of the answers he gave really made sense to Sarah, but she tried to follow along. She even asked Matthew if he was an artist and he didn't respond to her. He just kind of sat quietly Mm. like a fucking weirdo. So after some time passed and awkward silence, Matthew decided to let Sarah out of the bathroom. And this time she wasn't blindfolded so she could actually see his house. And when she left that bathroom, she was fucking shocked by what she saw. Matthew's entire house was covered in tons of leaves. Like real, from a tree, literal leaves. Leaves were stacked up in bags that reached the ceiling and all of his floors were completely covered in leaves. Like you couldn't even see his floors due to the metric fuck ton of leaves everywhere. He turned his house into the inside of a tree, pretty much. What the hell? They covered every single room except the small bathroom. And I did include a picture of Matthew Hoffman's house in my photo dump for this episode. If you would like to check that out and see it for yourself, it is fucking wild. His house is just literally covered in leaves. Actual fucking leaves. It's crazy. So Sarah is in shock and she asked Matthew, you know, like, what's the deal with all the leaves? Like, what what is going on? And Matthew told her that he used them as insulation so he could keep warm, which... Fucking weird answer, but okay, Sarah decided that she wasn't going to push the issue too much. She asked Matthew if he had killed her mom and her brother, to which he replied no. Sarah also asked if he had killed her dog, and he lied again, saying that he let the dog run away. And Sarah didn't believe any of these answers, but she lets the issue go for now. She's not trying to pry him too much, and plus she's fucking terrified and trying to process what has happened to her. Sarah then asked Matthew if he could feed her because Sarah hadn't eaten in several hours and she was very hungry. So Matthew goes, oh, yeah, you want some dead squirrel? It's in my freezer. Oh, my God. Like, I've I've actually had squirrel before, you know. I mean, right. I mean, I mean, it's it's not bad. Look, look, I don't judge it. That's what that's what I was going to say. Like, like Sarah. Sarah declined the squirrel like she was hungry, but not that hungry. She even said that she would rather go hungry than eat a squirrel. And I can't say I blame her for that because going on like what you said, I, I know some people eat squirrel. I'm born and raised in southern Georgia. People eat squirrels here. I've grown up hearing horrid stories of squirrel eating. <laughs> but me personally, you got me way fucked up. You got me way fucked up like I'm not eating a goddamn squirrel. I'm sorry. I'm just not going to. Oh, it's not that bad, Gage. So since <laughs> so since Sarah said that she didn't want the squirrel, Matthew made her a bowl of cereal instead. 
but the milk was way soured. Uh, like oh. way, way soured. But Sarah ate that bowl of cereal because she knew that she had to eat and she didn't know if she would have another chance to eat again soon. She had no idea. So she was like, I have to eat when I can. So oh, she, God. yeah, yeah, it's really fucking horrible. Matthew then decides that after the long night that he's had that he needs to sleep. Yep, he was real tired. So he puts a gag in Sarah's mouth, ties her hands and her feet together, and then he ties her to him so that she can't run away while he's asleep. 13-year-old Sarah Maynard has been kidnapped, and she's now being kept in Matthew Hoffman's House of Leaves, terrified and tied to a sleeping monster. And uh, you guys, that's where I'm going to cut off for part one. My muscles and my neck and my upper back are so tight right now from that. Like, it just got worse wild. and worse and worse. And it is wild. It is wild. This is not a fucking robbery gone wrong. I'm this sorry. Is not. It is not. It is. It exceeds that horrifically. I just, I don't know. I felt like this was a good place to stop the information because when we come back, <sighs> Uh, next week, we're going to get into the investigation, Matthew getting caught, which didn't take too terribly long. Thank goodness we're going to get into exactly what he did with the bodies of Tina, Stephanie, and Cody. I mean, it's fucking... This, this is a fever dream of a case. I'm, it really is. I'm literally uncomfortable, oh, yeah. yeah. Uncomfortable, yeah. yeah. Like, it's it's bad, man. It's bad. My anxiety is... Like peaking, like peaking. really bad. It's and you, you didn't know anything about this case, did you? I, I didn't. I didn't oh, know. Oh, baby, damn. I'm no, sorry. We had actually had a very <laughs> short conversation about like the man with the leaves before, but I, rem I remember that tidbit about the house being covered in leaves. Mm -hmm. But after getting the rest of the full story, just the visual of that, my mental picture is. Um, in insanely just not okay right now. I feel now. like I've been watching horror movies for 13 hours. Yeah, that's fucking terrifying. Yeah, I'm showing, <laughs> I'm actually showing uh, Ray a picture of the inside of Matthew Hoffman's house as yeah. we speak. Because I, I just wanted you to get the image. It's absolutely crazy. Again, that does not look like for insulation, my guy. That looks like for you to, you know, do your little throw yourself back like an angel out in the snow and just roll around and... It's crazy. Get your freak on. And it's really, really, really oh. fucking crazy, man. Like, I don't I don't know what to make of this case. Just know that for the past two weeks, I have been in a fucking chokehold with this book and this case. Just like it is. Oh, my God. It's I can understand why. I mean, just the the um, the murder execution alone is it's 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 creative. We, we've not heard these types of things before, I don't think. It's terrifying, honestly. It, definitely, and I don't care how many times I say it, definitely not a robbery gone wrong. No, dude. yeah. Like, Matthew Hoffman, I, I truly believe that he planned this. I believe that he wanted Sarah, that he had seen her and fixated on her and had decided that he was just going to kill everyone else. There's just no fucking way that he, you just don't fumble into stabbing and dismembering fucking people in a dog. I'm sorry, no, you, you don't. No, you don't, you don't. And especially since the fact that he was already killing, like, smaller animals 
and you he know, just like, flipped and just, he went yeah he started you know barbecuing squirrels which i guess that's not inherently weird he was climbing trees for hours again probably not inherently not weird. inherently weird for people who go hunting however like the past the in the past when i have gone hunting before you're you're not just i mean when you climb a tree stand yeah you are sitting there for hours but you have a specific purpose in mind and that is to watch out for you know, the the animal that you are going after, say a deer. Right, right. But, like, just to go up there and to sit up there and just, like... Just stare? I don't know. Because right. being 30 feet up in the air with the wind making the tree sway back and forth, no. you can keep that shit. That made me very uncomfortable. That's what the fuck I'm saying. So... Yeah, you guys, um, I would love to hear what all of you think about this. Again, next week will be the conclusion of this case. I'm not dragging this out into a three-parter. We will for sure finish it next week. Honestly, I'm just very anxiety-ridden right now. I don't want a tree to, I don't want to look at a tree. I don't want, I don't want a leaf to look at me. I'm just (laughs) feeling very fucking weird right now. Like One, two, three, four. Five, six. I have like seven windows in my bedroom. Stop. Literally, you can stop that and now. And a shit ton of trees in my backyard. You can literally stop that shit now. You can quit it. Thank you so much for understanding. No, ma'am. Go cover them now. Now. Jesus. No. No, 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 no. Okay, so I'm going to stop rambling. We're going to go ahead and close this episode up, you guys. I hope you enjoyed the coverage today. Be sure to join us next Thursday for the conclusion. And, uh, yeah, if you would like to follow Ray and I and all of our (laughs) well, great news, you can totally do that. You can find us on Facebook at Gore Report, a true crime podcast. On Instagram. At Gore Report Podcast. Follow our Patreon. www.patreon.com slash Gore Report Podcast. Or if you just want to drop us a line and say hi or request a case, feel free to email us at goreportpod at gmail.com. And, uh, yeah, I'm just gonna, we're gonna, the first thing you're gonna do is cover up these fucking windows. (laughs) That's gonna be the first thing you do. And then, uh, I don't know, can we watch more anime or something to to that effect? Sure. Okay, cool. Well, all right, guys. Nothing having to do with trees and ninjas, for sure. (laughs) Absolutely fucking not, no. And until next time. Bye. Bye.